So we are now in Advent, right? The season where we remember the birth of Jesus, the one that God sent to reconcile all things to himself, to usher in his perfect reign of justice and peace. We met him first in a manger. It's a helpless baby, the extraordinary wrapped up in the ordinary. This is one aspect of Advent. We remember that Christ came. But often what's neglected is that during this season, we remember that Christ will return, that there is still work to be done in the world, and that God is not yet finished in reconciling all things to himself. Uh, Alita, a member of our community, she wrote a great blog on Advent. You can check it on our website. Uh, But there's something in that blog that I want to read. She says, life is a middle space. Life is a middle space. All of life unfolds in the middle space of uncertainty and unknown and waiting. I think she's put her finger on the pulse of Advent. Advent is this time of living between two appearings. It's the time of living between the reality that Christ has come and that Christ will return, but we are still in the midst of a world that can be barren at times, in a world that still needs mending. So this Advent, we're going to look at Luke's gospel and the story of how Christ was brought into the world. And in particular, we're going to look at the people God used to prepare the world for the first Advent. And by looking at their lives, we're going to be asking the question, how does this prepare us as a people to be expectantly waiting Christ's return? How do we live in the middle space? So our text this week is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And it's the beginning of the story. And Luke wants to make one point crystal clear. God is faithful. God is faithful and and nothing No sort of barrenness, not the barrenness of the womb, not the barrenness of the world, not the barrenness of the heart. Nothing can get in the way of God's faithfulness to his promises. So this morning, we're going to look at the barrenness of the womb, the barrenness of the world, the barrenness of the heart, and how God is still faithful. So if you keep your Bibles open, uh, follow along with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So Luke, he starts us off by introducing us to the two main characters of this passage, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. We'll call them Zach and Lizzie, and uh, definitely from Saved by the Bell. But we're given their um, credentials right, right out the door. And, and they, like, they can pull some serious social rank in Israel's world. You know, they're, they're from Abijah and from the, the, the line of Aaron. Like, this is priestly pure. It doesn't get um, better than this. And, we're, and Luke tells us that they were righteous before God. And this doesn't mean that they were perfect. It didn't mean that they had attained some level of sinlessness. It simply meant that they were faithful in following the Torah. They were faithful in following the five books of Moses. They followed the commands to the best of their ability. And when they failed, when they fell short, they offered the sacrifices. They did their best. It's not perfection, but direction that Luke is commenting on. And so here we have a couple who, who loves God, a couple who, who loves one another, who loves people, and they're righteous and they're blameless. And this is what makes verse 5 so heartbreaking. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, I don't care what century or what culture you're in. 
barrenness of the womb, not being able to have children is heartbreaking. And for Elizabeth, that would have carried the same emotional devastation as it does today, but there was also a spiritual component in her culture. In her culture, not being able to have children was seen as being cursed by God. And you can imagine, like, the rumor mill, how that would be going around, right? Oh, you know, Zach and Lizzie, like, yeah, they're righteous and blameless, but they don't have any children, so, like, there must be something going on that we're not aware of. But the situation they find themselves in is not an unfamiliar situation for faithful couples throughout the scriptures. To name just one couple, Abraham and Sarah. Both were barren. Both two were old. And God promised them a child. He promised them a child who would bring about God's people in the world. This was the child of promise. And this was how God was going to act in the world. And God was faithful to his promise. And they had Isaac. And so when we look to the scriptures, we see that barrenness in particular should breed some sort of expectation within us. Because it's this sort of situation that we can anticipate that God will show up. And Elizabeth and Zechariah, they knew this. They would have looked to the scriptures. They would have seen how God showed up for couples. They would have been hoping and praying that God would reverse their situation. But then the years continued to add up. And the prayers continued to go unanswered. And now they're advanced in years. And it seems like the window of opportunity for God to show up and reverse their situation is all but closed, if not closed, firmly. So that's Elizabeth and Zechariah. Faithful, loving people, barren. So Luke introduces us to them. But then in verse 8, he zooms out from them and he takes us somewhere else. He takes us to the temple. And the temple was the center of activity for the people of God in their day. And Luke, I think he makes this shift because he wants us to know that as personally devastating as Elizabeth and Zachariah's barrenness is, it's actually a picture into something else that is going on in the world too. It's really about something else as well. And I mean, you guys get this. Like sometimes when you're arguing, right? Like you're, you're fighting with someone and it, gets, it keeps escalating. I don't, I don't know what it is. Like maybe you put someone's picture on the screen and you didn't ask permission and they're mad at you, right? But like, like this thing, right? Like this thing you're arguing about, you discover at the end, of, like it's like about something else that happened two weeks ago, right? Like, and like Julia and I, like we know this. Like 1% of the time in an argument, like it's definitely my fault. But like 99 percent of the time, like 99% of the time, we're arguing, it's just getting like intense and we don't even know what we're fighting about. Like 99, like almost always, it is because one of us is hungry. (laughs) Or as I like to call it, like, you know, hangry. Like one of us is so clouded in our judgment because of our hunger that everything you're doing is wrong in the moment. We're fighting and fighting, but it is really about something else. You know, we we get this and, and And what we see then is the barrenness of Elizabeth's womb. It's a reflection of a different barrenness that's going on in the world. It's a reflection of the barrenness that's happening for the people of God. And that's why Luke takes us to the temple. You see, in ancient uh, Judaism, the temple was, was the place where heaven was supposed to intersect with earth. It was the place that the people and the priests went to work out their relationship with God. And they would offer their prayers for forgiveness, for atonement. They would offer their prayers 
for God to finally send the Messiah, to send this king they had been waiting for, to finally establish his everlasting kingdom. But they had only known silence for hundreds of years. They hadn't seen God speak. There had been no reliable prophets. There had been no good kings. There had been no fulfillment of promises. And while they waited for this Messiah, while they waited for the true king, they waited under the oppressive rule of Rome. They had a very different king ruling them. This wasn't how things were supposed to be. There weren't any signs of heaven intersecting with earth. It was was a barren time for the people of God. So in verse 8, we join Zechariah in his place of work. We join him in the temple. He's a priest. And and he would be among many priests. There were about 18,000 priests in Zechariah's day. And so they would have a rotation of when you served in the temple and and one priest would get to burn incense. You know, and, and so they had this very high-tech system. They would cast lots, which was essentially rolling dice to decide who would get to do it. And verse 9 tells us it landed on Zechariah. He's the one chosen to go into the temple to burn incense that represents the p- prayers of the people to God. It's a big deal. Like This would happen maximum one time in your vocation as a priest. And most priests would never ever even get to do this. This is like, like, bust out the bow tie, the snazzy shoes. You know, like, Elizabeth is like, yo, you look nice. You know, like, go to work. Like, this is a big day. And it signifies, like, God, it, like, it also signifies that God chose him. That God is having favor on him. That God is blessing him. And we're told in verse 10, like, as he's entering the temple, like, the people are gathered outside praying. They're unified together in prayer and they'd be praying for the forgiveness of their sins. They would be praying for God to finally send the Messiah. They would be praying. And Zechariah, he heads into the darkness of this dimly lit temple with this tangible smell of incense, you know, representing these prayers. Prayers that they're hoping will go up to heaven. You got to wonder, like, how is Zechariah's heart? He's been following God. He's been He's been faithful. But barrenness is everywhere. Like, he just can't get away from it. Like, he goes home and, like, there's barrenness. He, he goes to work and there's barrenness. He looks at the world and there's barrenness. Like, we don't know how his heart is, but he heads into the temple anyways. And then God shows up. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because it's in these times, it's in these places, it's in these sorts of situations that that God shows just how faithful he is to his promises. It's in these sort of barren places where God shows that things are never so far gone that he can't show up and bring his reversal. The barrenness of the womb, the barrenness of the world, it will not stop God from bringing about his promises to his people. God is faithful and he shows up. Verse 11 through 12. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Zechariah, an angel shows up, he's afraid. And uh, that's just like the default human response to this sort of encounter. Like, nobody is ever expecting an angel to show up. Like, I know, like, in scriptures, like, it looks like angels are just, like, hanging out, showing up all the time. Like, this was not the normal everyday situation for anybody in scriptures. When angels show up, it is a, a unique and, and special, like, once-in-a-lifetime-again sort of situation. 
Like, think about it. Like, if you're driving to work and an angel shows up in the back of your car, it's like, poof, angel's there. It's like, thou shalt take me to Chipotle. You would be like, what is happening right now? What sort of angel is this? Obviously a delicious angel, but, you know, it, well, one with good taste. An angel wouldn't be delicious. Anyways, <laughs> the angel, right, says in verse 13 to Zachariah, like, don't be afraid, Zach. Like, don't, don't be afraid because your prayer's been heard. Your prayer's been heard. Here's a question. Which prayer? Is it the prayers that he and Elizabeth prayed every night through tears asking for a child? Is it those prayers? Is it the prayers of the people outside desperate to see God show up in the world? Desperate to see God put things back to rights? Desperate to see God send the Messiah? Is it those prayers? Which prayers? All of them. I want to point that out because God answers all of our prayers too. God hears all of our prayers too. All of them. Peter, in one of his letters, um, says to the churches, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. You know, like the, whether it's the prayers we make in private, whether it's the prayers we make in a group of people, whether they're small or big, whether they seem insignificant or whether they carry the weight of the world, like all of them, like we can cast all of them on God. And our prayers in the midst of situations that seem hopeless and barren, God hears them. He knows them. And he will respond to them, as Peter says, at the proper time. That's what we're seeing in Zechariah. Like God is answering the prayers at the people at the proper time. And we don't always know when. We don't always know how. But we know that God is faithful to his people. And he's attentive to their needs. So in verse 13 through 17, like so much good stuff is said about John. But I want to stay focused on Zechariah. You know, the angel says to Zechariah, essentially like, your prayers have been answered. Your, your private prayers and the, the prayers of the people, like, you're going to have a son. You and Elizabeth will have a son, and he will be named John. There's the answer to your prayer. But your son, he will actually be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. He will be the one who prepares the world and gets people ready to receive Jesus. He'll be the one preparing the way for the first advent. It's the answer of the prayers of the people. The waiting is about to end. It's good news. It's good news. And, and, and Zechariah's like, he's just heard. His prayers are going to be answered. The answer hasn't arrived yet, but it's on its way. And, and God's faithful to his promises. So Zechariah can take this to the bank. But he doesn't. And that's where we finally get a look into Zechariah's heart. Verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, wait a minute. How can I be sure about this? I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Now, gentlemen, there is a lesson to be learned from Zechariah here. When talking about himself, he is old. When talking about his wife, she is advanced in years. You know, well played, Zechariah. But for all the wisdom he has about being married, he seems to lack the wisdom of talking back to an angel of God. Zechariah is essentially saying, like, I don't know, like, how can I trust God's going to do this? Like, could you give me some sort of sign? In verse 19, the angel's just like, um, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. 
I was sent to you to bring this good news. You know, like essentially Gabriel's saying, like, I don't know if you remember like how I just showed up out of nothing and scared and freaked you out really, really bad. Like if you're looking for a sign, <clears throat> this guy, like I should be good enough. But Zachariah, he doubts. And look, I, I, I want to talk about doubt. I don't want to say all forms of doubt are bad. Like some doubt can be good, like self-doubt. Right? Like sometimes self-doubt can be a sign of maturity. Like if Zachariah was truly just looking at himself, looking that he's old and he's thinking, man, like I literally don't have the ability to do this. Like I don't think that'd be a bad thing. And then there's, there's a certain part of doubt that's just a part of knowing what you don't know, right? And then knowing what you do know could be wrong, right? Like there's just epistemological humility for a lack of better way of saying it. And you might be doubting that I even know what that means. Like that sort of doubt, like that, like that is okay. Like that sort of doubt is okay. And even like the song we sang earlier, like Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like having faith in, in Jesus and, and yet not having all the answers and still struggling and trying to figure things out, like that is okay. But then there's a doubt that actually erodes our faith. It's a doubt that doubts God's promises and it doubts God's ability to bring about his promises when he tells you that he's going to do this. And this sort of doubt, it actually erodes our hearts and, and it fills them with rust and unbelief and it, it inhibits us from trusting God. Zechariah, he's falling into this sort of doubt. It's not admirable, it's, it's not good, it's, it's certainly not righteous. And what it looks like is that the barrenness of Elizabeth's womb has spread to Zechariah's heart. The barrenness of the circumstances he's facing in the world have, have sucked him dry. It's, it's, it's made it difficult, if not impossible, for him to trust God's word. And I think all of us, right, to some degree, can relate to Zechariah. Like, we know, like, like, he hadn't stopped following God. He kept doing his job. He was being faithful in his life, faithful in his vocation, serving in the temple, but his heart was a wreck. Like, we get that, right? When I, when I was growing up, um, one of my chores my parents had for me was raking leaves. And when I was younger, like, I actually thought it was kind of fun. They tricked me. Like, they taught me, like, this is a fun thing to do. But as, as I became a teenager, like, it was not something I really looked forward to, but it was my chore, and I owned it, and I was faithful in it. But my parents, for whatever reason, like, they would never upgrade the rake. Like, and it was one of those wooden rakes with, like, the prongs, and, like, all of them were broken except for three like, I may as well have used a broom. Like, I was just pronging leaves into a pile. And, and there's one fall that I remember. I had just procrastinated it. And the front yard, like, it was just leaves. And my parents were like, today is the day, young man, that you're going to rake the leaves. So I went out and was being faithful. I was raking the leaves. And it was starting to get dark. And it was, like, bitter cold. Couldn't feel my hands. And I remember at some point, I looked up. And at the front of my parents' house, there was a window that looked into the living room. And they were wrapped in blankets. They had a fire on. They were sipping hot chocolate, watching TV. And uh, I remember thinking, like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> like, do they even see me? Like, do they see that I am outside in the cold? Like, why, why aren't they helping me? And then I thought, like, where's my reward? Like, you made hot cocoa. Like, how hard would it have been to come out and just give me a cup? I'm freezing out here. And then what I thought was, you know, do they even care? 
Like, did they just procreate to create a son who could rake leaves so they could enjoy the goodness of hot cocoa? Like, is that why I, they have me? Is that why I'm here? You know, I was being faithful in my, my task. I was pronging the leaves as best as I could. But bitterness, like just an intense bitterness was welling up in my heart. But I kept raking anyways. And it, you know what? Eventually my parents did come outside and they said, look, it's getting dark. Why don't you come in? You can finish tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm going to stay out here with the leaves. <laughs> and I sat outside in the cold, in the leaves, just like fuming angry. And in that moment, in that moment, I chose barrenness because my doubt had eroded my trust in my parents. Like we know what it's like, right? To go through the motions, to do the right things, but while inside, you know, inside our hearts, they're barren. We know this in relationships. Like you know what it's like to show up, I don't know, maybe at a church service and to see someone that you're cordial to, but inside there's anger, there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness, and you just put on a face. And it can be the same with God. Like you can be doing all the things you're supposed to be doing for God, but you're bitter because things just haven't changed and prayers just haven't been answered. And you're asking, like, has he seen me? Like, does he even care? Is he even there? And it keeps you from trusting him. Or maybe, like, you're faithful, like, in all these things for God and, like, you're doing all these different things and, like, your life just isn't going the way you thought. It's not plan A or B or even C. Like, you never get the job. You never get the promotion. You never get, like, the relationship that you dream and hope for. And inside, you're thinking, like, God, where is my reward? You owe me. So you don't trust God. Maybe you're here and, like, you don't believe in God. And, and considering, like, crossing the line of faith, like, if there's a God, like, that just makes you more angry. Because if, he, if there's a God, how could he? How could he let that person hurt you the way they hurt you? How could he let that person die at such a young age? How could God let these things happen? And it stops you from trusting him. You see, it's this sort of doubt that erodes faith. It produces bitterness. And it fractures our relationship with God. And I think that's what's happening with Zechariah here. And there's a consequence for it. Verse 20, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Here's your sign, Zechariah. You want a second sign? Mute. You know, silence. And I think the consequence, like it is, it is a stunning portrayal of what doubt, that, like what this sort of doubt actually does to us. It silences us. Like what happens when you doubt if God really hears your prayers? You stop praying. What happens when you doubt if you can really find out if there even is a God? You stop seeking. What happens when you doubt if you can ever really trust God? You stop following him. You stop sharing him with others. You become silenced in your actions because you're barren in your heart. Here's the beautiful thing in this passage. Zachariah's lack of faith, Zachariah's doubt which has eroded his faith, Zachariah's barren heart 
doesn't change God's loving, faithful, grace-filled action towards him. God doesn't look at Zachariah and say, well, Zach, you doubted me, so you're not going to get the son now. You're not going to have a child now because you doubted. While the barrenness of Zachariah's heart needs to be addressed, and it will be addressed, it does not determine God's faithfulness to his promises. It does not determine God's faithfulness to his word. Think about it. At the beginning of this passage, Zechariah is righteous and blameless and without a child. At this point, he has a doubt that is eroding his faith, but he has the promise of a child. See, his goodness does not warrant God's promise and his disbelief does not negate it. Our faith or our lack of faith does not you know, expedite or hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. Why? Because God is preparing Zechariah for the advent of grace. God is showing Zechariah that he has always been a God of grace. He has always been a God of unmerited favor, a God of graciousness, uh, before he ever asks anyone to any sort of step of obedience. But God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises, but he's also faithful to us too. He doesn't just bulldoze over people to bring about his will. He's not inattentive to our hearts. Like Zechariah, he's not going to leave him in that barrenness. He'll overcome what's festering in there. Verse 14, Gabriel says to Zechariah, like, when you have your son, you will have joy and gladness. Like the, the consequence of silence will eventually give birth to joy and gladness. You know, when John is born, like the first thing Zechariah does is he prophesies with great joy and praises God. And we'll get to that in two weeks. We'll look at how God redeems that part of the heart. But for now, Zechariah comes out of the temple. Verse 22, you know, he's unable to speak. And the people, like, they, they assume he's seen a vision. And I imagine, like, this is like epic game of charades and miming, like, You know, okay, something happened to Zechariah. He's lost it. But he goes home. And what I love about this passage is that Elizabeth gets the last word. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Let's... Let's be real for a second. Like, if I was Elizabeth, and I know that's a bit of a stretch, but like, if I was Elizabeth, and I'd been righteous and blameless and barren, and like, I knew people like had their opinions about why I had a baby, and then I was pregnant, I'd be like, "Hey, have you seen the baby bump? Like, have you noticed pregnant and righteous? Booyah! Like, here's the baby. You guys were wrong. God loves me. He's blessed me. Peace. You know, like, drop the mic out of there. But not, like, not." Not Elizabeth. Not Elizabeth. That's, that's why she is so beautiful. She conceals it. She's humble. Like she, she's just thankful. She's full of gratitude. Like that's enough for her. Like it's enough just to, to be thankful to God. And we see like she responds so differently than her husband. That the barrenness of her womb has not spread to her heart. The barrenness of their circumstances did not suck out any hope that God may show up. She simply says, like, God has done this for me. This shows us something. She didn't give up on who God is. 
despite her age, despite her barrenness, despite years of unanswered prayer, she, say, she remained op- hopeful and open to the possibility that at any moment God could show up and reverse her condition. That wasn't off the table for her. She didn't reach a point in her life where she said, you know what, God, your time is up. I'm done with you. I'm done waiting. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful and nothing, not the barrenness of the womb, not the barrenness of the world, not the barrenness of the heart. Nothing can get in the way of God's faithfulness to his promises. She knew this. She knew this because she read the scriptures and she clung to that. She clung to how God had shown up throughout history time and time again. She clung to the testimony that God is a faithful God. She clung to that hope. And I think this is the heart of what it means to live in the middle space of Advent. This is what it means to live in between the time of Christ's birth and his return. Because there's still a whole lot of barrenness in the world. If we're honest, there's still a whole lot of barrenness in our own hearts. And we know what it's like to be praying prayers that just aren't being answered. Good prayers. Prayers like, Lord, deliver my brother from addiction. Prayers like, Lord, we just want a child. Good prayers, hearing no answers. We can't let the waiting, though, the silence, or the hurt of the barrenness determine who God is. Like, if we have to wait, that doesn't mean that God is inactive. If it seems like there's silence, it doesn't mean that God isn't listening. If there's hurt in the barrenness, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. But if we let how we perceive God negatively because of our circumstances determine who God is, doing that, that sort of doubt, that sort of doubt of who God is, will erode our faith. It'll leave us unable to trust him in this middle space. And it'll be tempting to just stay outside, to sit on the leaves, to be angry at God, and to hear his invitation to come into his presence and just say no. Because your doubt has eroded your trust Can you trust God, even in the barrenness? Will barrenness give way to doubt or to hope? This passage, it shows us that however you respond, however you respond, it will not change God's faithfulness. However you respond, in doubt or in hope, it will not change God's faithfulness. God is equally faithful to Zachariah as he is to Elizabeth. And it's the freedom to be exactly as you are. Whether you have a doubt that is eroding your faith, or whether you're hopeful and excited and thankful and grateful about what God is doing, exactly as you are, God remains faithful. And as you are, it does not impede or expedite his faithfulness to his promises. That's what makes God's faithfulness so beautiful. He's just faithful. Nothing can get in the way of that. And in Advent, we remember that. We remember that he was faithful in bringing Christ into the world. He answered thousands and hundreds of years of prayer and prophecy. He brought about the king that the world really needs. And he's faithful and he will return. and He will make all things new. Can you trust the God 
who is faithful, even in the barrenness.